Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the JT and Big O podcast. We are your hosts, Video Geek JT and Ryan Big O'Regan. How are you doing, my friend? It's been another week. It's hot. It's, it's very hot. <laughs> it's not, you know what? It's actually kind of cool right now as we're speaking. But yeah, last night, last night sucked. What what is with the weather in New Jersey? How can it go from like a week ago where it was snowing to now where it's where it's blistering hot out? I I, I mean, I'm an old enough man where I could say El Nino is still present in our <laughs> lives, but you know, let's just face it, 2020. And I've said this in a post of myself, can kiss the fattest part of my ass lately, man. <laughs> it's there's just too much going on. Too, too much. It's like once December rolls around and they do a year in review and they want to go ahead and joke about all the things that have possibly happened. We're not even halfway through the year yet. Hey. And now we've gotten like snow when it's not supposed to be snow, uh sudden heat, coronavirus, all sorts of nonsense. And now apparently next week we're getting tropical storms already. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen until like midsummer. Well- well, that's something I was also thinking about. Like, you know, this this whole thing with coronavirus is awful. Like, like this is president. This is everything we're thinking about right now. But, yeah, what happens when another disaster comes along? Like, it, it feels like we don't have the capacity right now to take on anything past the coronavirus. But if there is a tropical storm or a hurricane or a tornado or some other big disaster in the world... How can we take that on right now? You know what this is? This is essentially like getting all the Transformers movies in one year. And like <laughs> right up, right about now, we're just starting up um, uh, the third one with uh, Leonard Nimoy. So I, I fear when we get to like the Mark Wahlberg movies, because that's just going to be way worse. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to be like uh, like we were with the Transformers movies. After the second one, I'm just going to shut down and pretend it's not happening. That's pretty much where we are right now. <laughs> A lot of people pretending it's not happening. That's why they're out in the streets. Yeah, our home state, like uh, they opened up the beaches this uh, this weekend. And it's I'm not going to these beaches like who who's oh, God, going no. to these places. And next weekend with a baby Memorial Day weekend, it's going to be much worse. It. You know, the curve really hasn't flattened yet. Like the this is how the curve is flattened. Like, oh, we've only reached twenty new cases or twenty thousand new cases a day and around two hundred deaths. That's it. That that's good enough for us to start slowly moving back to normal. Like yeah, that's it's better still, than it was, but it's still not great. But that's still twenty thousand not current cases, new cases. New cases. Not old, not happened, not was pronounced, new cases per day. And the other count, the death count, is also per day. 200 people dying per day for this. And I think that's, I'm just saying the state record right now. I think if we look around the country and the world, it's it's still, the death count is way, way huge for every day due to this virus. And we're opening, we're open, we're like, oh, well, you can open up and you can open up. And I can understand some of the places where there's not too much going on. Like, okay, maybe it can tweak, but we're New Jersey. We're, we're the most densely populated state. We should not be opening up anything right now. Maybe that's the introvert in me talking, but 
keep keep things shut down just just a little bit longer till you know like we get down to maybe like five ten people dying per day and the ironic thing is and this is something that only like the the closest of our fans would probably know the next two weeks are even going to be worse for you and me because next weekend is my birthday (laughs) and then the weekend after is your birthday yep i i've already given up on my birthday i'm like oh i gave up on mine years ago i mean (laughs) It's like, I'm not having any parties. I'm not having any get-togethers. If I have cake, I've already told people there's no candles on the cake. It's like, you don't want me breathing on the cake. You don't want me blowing on the cake. Nothing's going to happen to the cake. I don't want people to know how old I am at this point. That's the only (laughs) reason I would do it. But yeah, it's, I mean, my family's already told me that uh, they got me my favorite cake from when my bakery, who just suddenly opened for Mother's Day, was open. So they went ahead, purchased the cake. It's in the freezer waiting for us. And I'm supposed to be going into my sister's backyard with my mother and my sister and my uh, brother-in-law. And that's all that we have planned. We're just going to be sharing some cake. They're probably going to order Italian, probably chicken parm, because that's one of my favorites. And we're just going to be doing that in the backyard. That's probably the most sterilized birthday I'll ever have in my lifetime. And yet it's still better than other birthdays I've had. That's how much my birthday usually sucks. Uh, Now I feel bad. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I, I've given up on my birthday a long time ago. I think uh, my 20th birthday, that night I started uh, accounting courses at my college. And that's when I was like, yeah, birthdays are done for me. I'm, I'm taking a really boring three-hour class. That's how I'm celebrating my birthday. And I just Ew, I gave up on my oh, birthdays account- after that. Oh, dude. God, Jesus. Needed that degree, man. I mean, I've never used it since I got it, but I needed that degree. Did you at least chug a beer during the (laughs) class? I mean, give me something to work with here. No, I don't even remember if I had a party. Maybe, maybe me and my family had a cake beforehand before I went off to class, but I think that's about it. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, yeah. As as sad as that all is, obviously, you know, with everything going on, we're going to be stuck inside, and uh, that brings us to our first topic because there's another gentleman who is really, I think, feeling the effects of the quarantine and of everything going on. And that's Robert Pattinson. How is he feeling this? Like, uh, I, I, like we're, we're talking about him and Batman. How is he feeling the effects of coronavirus stuck inside? Well, so, is this why he doesn't want to work out? He may be going <laughs> off the deep end a little bit. Um, if there's the article that came out this week over in uh, GQ, where they went ahead and did a report on um, you know him in quarantine and everything like that, and mind you, for all relative reports about Robert Pattinson, him being the isolated type has kind of always been one of his things. He's always been the kind of person that's like you know he doesn't mind being isolated. He doesn't mind. Uh, being by himself or with his girlfriend and just having that like you know time to himself given how everything was during his twilight years pun intended (laughs) uh it kind of stands to reason you know he's not the kind of actor that loves the spotlight he just likes the craft which i can respect but uh the recent interview in gq uh kind of shed a little light on how he's been handling things and of course with him having uh the movie tenant coming out in possibly theaters this July and his current work on the new uh, Matt Reeves Batman movie. Um, people are a little concerned with how he's necessarily taking the approach of 
training during the quarantine and just trying to keep himself mentally and physically well when Batman starts filming again. Now, I believe one of the things I had heard is that he feels that actors shouldn't be like, especially for superhero movies, shouldn't be in a rush for a major physical transformation into a big buff superhero. And his approach, I think, is not to go that direction and I guess not exercise as much as he he would for a role like that. Is that pretty much what you said? Well, yeah, if I can actually go ahead and um, give the actual quotes here. Um, this is per GQ themselves. Uh, the, film, the film studio hired a trainer who left Pattinson with a BOSU ball, which I'm not sure what a BOSU ball is. Is that like the big inflatable ball that you just kind of like lay up your back on and everything? I'm not sure, but it sounds like it. Yeah, because, you know, obviously we're, we're big gym people, you and I, so <laughs> we would know this. We're big people. Um, a BOSU ball, a single weight, and a sincere plea to use both. But right now he says he's ignoring her. Quote, I think if you're working out all the time, you're part of the problem, he says sighingly. By you, he means other actors. Quote, you set a precedent. No one was doing this in the 70s. Even James Dean, he wasn't exactly ripped. So I kind of get where he may be going with this, um, simply because there is a pro and a con to what he's saying. Now, the thing is, yes, in the landscape of superhero films, usually if you're playing a superhero, you have to be like the peak physical condition of what a human can be, regardless of who your character is. And that's pretty much just how it's been set up lately. Like, if you look at, like, you know, earlier superhero movies, you look at Christopher Reeve's Superman, you look at Michael Keaton's Batman, you even look at Dolph Lundgren's Punisher. Not everybody was peak physical conditioning. Well, that's true, but Christopher Reeves was a pretty bulky guy, so I think he could get away with that. Batman with uh, Michael Keaton. Actually, that was the example I was thinking about when uh, Robert Patton was talking about this. But he also had a giant rubber bodysuit with abs built into it. And well, technically, Dolph, a lot of the Batman have the abs built into the suit. That's and the funny thing about and it. Dolph Lundgren is freaking Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, he will but, break I mean, you. you. Compare Dolph Lundgren to how he was in like Rocky Four to Dolph Lundgren as the Punisher. Stark contrast. Yeah, he wasn't as big and bulky as he was in Rocky Four, but still, he's Dolph Lundgren. He he looks like he can beat your ass. Right. Um, Robert Patton does not. Robert Patton is a very well, skinny dude. I, yes, okay. He may be a little bit more spindly than other actors, but I would be of the mind to think, do all superheroes have to be ripped? Batman does. And I... I think for this particular Batman that Matt Reeves is doing, which is kind of more uh, taking influence from like uh, the long Halloween and everything. This Batman is probably going to be the most actual detective Batman that we have gotten yet. And I think if that's the case, then maybe you focus this Batman more on being psychologically intimidating rather than physically intimidating, especially considering we're coming off the heels of a, super ripped Ben Affleck killing people kind of Batman. <laughs> well, the I now I'm not going to say you need to be ripped to be Batman, even though I think I just did. 
Uh, Michael Keane, I, th <laughs> I think Michael Keane is a great example because Michael Keane was never very physically intimidating as well. Uh, his suit made him a little more intimidating. And I think if they go that direction where they give him a very intimidating looking suit, uh, I think they could get away with it. Uh, so far, though, we have seen bits and pieces of the suit, and I have not been impressed. I don't know about you. Oh, you um, mean with a little gun emblem or not yeah. gun emblem, whatever that's supposed to be? Yeah, that one. Uh, I don't know. Stuff about everything I've seen so far about this upcoming Batman movie, A, I'm not overly excited. I think Justice League and uh, all those films have kind of killed my excitement a little bit. This is Batman's reboot uh, number three in six, eight years. And uh, mind you, that's third reboot, fourth Batman franchise, yeah. and that's not even counting the 1960s Batman, right? Because then it'd be five plus all the animated uh incarnations over the last few years. But I don't know, I, I do kind of agree in the sense that sometimes actors go through these physical transformations and they're not healthy and they're gonna hurt you in the long run. Uh, Tommy. Tom Hanks is a good example where he uh, actually Tom Hanks and the former Batman Christian Bale, where they both lost an incredible amount of weight for certain roles. And then Christian oh, Bale God, went yeah, no, for, Christian Bale and the machinist was just yeah, and, gaudy looking. And Christian Bale went from machinist straight to Batman. So he went from someone who made himself incredibly skinny to incredibly bulky. And that's also very not healthy either. So, the yeah actors shouldn't be going for these extreme physical changes but at the same time i think if you're going to play a superhero try to get in some form of shape i right but i think everyone's that, ignoring I, seriously the though that, you know, no 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 so he was think, doing Batman no 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 no, no. think, think the... about this with the the way he's saying this does it really sound like he's saying this is the way actors should go or does he sound like a lazy brat because the way that you kind of emphasized it, I didn't really read the article. I'm just going by what I'm hearing from others. The way <laughs> the way that you kind of said it to me just a moment ago, it makes him sound more like a, a little brat going, uh, oh, I know my trainer is saying to do this, but we shouldn't have to focus on this. It's like, I don't want to do this right now. That's what it sounds more like to me. See, I think that's where it becomes a matter of interpretation. Because if you look at someone like Robert Pattinson, he was already doing Batman things prior to the quarantine. So Lord knows he was probably already going through a rigorous training regiment while he was on set. And mind you, Robert Pattinson's never been like the kind of guy who's been out of shape. You look at any of his films from Twilight to, you know, Good Time to, you know, The Lighthouse. He's always had like a good physical physique. So yeah, maybe in a certain sense, people could see it as being whiny because, yeah, he's being paid to be Batman. The least you can do is go ahead and look like Batman. But in a sense, we don't even know what kind of Batman we're getting yet. We're, all we can go off of is like shots of the costume and shots of him on a motorcycle. Maybe this isn't going to be the hard punching, kicking Batman that we've gone before. Maybe it is going to be a more of a psychological Batman. Thus, if this is going to be more dialogue driven, more mental why do we have to necessarily punch ourselves to death to get to a physical, you know, pinnacle that isn't even going to be showcased that often because the guy's going to be constantly in costume. And the uh. fact that actors are going ahead and putting themselves to these extremes for a particular role, just because the studio says so, regardless of your own personal health concerns is a little troubling. 
again, I agree with that point, but I'm I'm more worried that he's not taking the role seriously as opposed to standing up for uh, the health of fellow actors and himself. I he, I don't know if he's not taking it seriously. I mean, the, I think in the same interview, uh, it's gone on to say that uh, while he's been in seclusion, he's actually been reviewing uh, the other Batman films and the other iterations of Batman. Um, I think he goes on far, as far as to say that, um, you know, he's looked at the Christopher Nolan stuff, obviously, because he's in a Christopher Nolan movie. So that's probably what helped spark that. And he's even gone as far as to watch Batman and Robin, which is like the worst that you could possibly see. So I think in that sense, he's actually studying more than he is working out. <laughs> With a bag of popcorn and a cup of soda. Um, well, I mean, he's taking the Jared Leto approach. Jared Leto pretty much did the same thing when he was going about being Joker. He went ahead and looked at the other incarnations. He looked at Heath Ledger. He looked at Jack Nicholson. He looked at Cesar Romero. And uh, he looked at Mark Hamill. I'm and glad- he looked at what it was about those Jokers that made them Joker, but still made them their own. So this way he could have his own personal interpretation. I think he's going to make this Batman Robert Pattinson's Batman. It may not be a universal Batman, but it's going to be his own. And he's going to be looking at it from an actor's standpoint, not just the mold of clay that the studio wants. I'm glad that when you were picking your example, because, you know, with Batman movies, uh, people have questioned uh, choices for certain characters and certain actors playing them over the years. I'm glad that you picked Jared Leto, the one that everyone agreed should have not played Joker. I'll admit his Joker may not have been the best, but you can't uh, say in fact, that a lot of people really say it's the worst. Anybody else? <laughs> that you could say you can say his acting was something, not good, but something. Yes. <laughs> Some now, s- what the Matt Reeves does with these interpretations of the characters—that's for him to decide. That's for him to you know take the pieces of the puzzle and put them together. Just as Johnson made his uh, decision on what to decide for. Uh, the last Jedi, uh, you know what? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes these people don't know what they're doing. And you know what? I, I've learned over the years with uh, like choices like Michael Keaton, which actually I knew a lot of people hated Michael Keaton as Batman or hated the choice of him before the movie was released. I grew up with him as Batman. So I always thought of him as Batman. Mm. And then as time went on, Christian Bale, people didn't believe in. He turned out to be a great Batman. Uh, a lot of backlash for Heath Ledger and Joker, and Heath won a freaking Oscar for the role. Posthumously, um, but yes. So, you know, I, I'm a believer in giving people a shot. Mm, Robert Patton, I'll probably also give a shot, but you know what? You, you got to start looking for the red flags. And uh, I, he, he's, he's sitting on his couch watching Batman movies, waving a red flag right now. <laughs> well, again, what it's all speculation until we actually see like a trailer or something. And obviously we're not going to see that until they get back on set, which may be soon, maybe sooner than it should be. Um, But I think the, sorry, I've got cats screaming in the backyard. Um, Cats. Well, at least let's not start with cats, but let's, let's, (laughs) let's, we will, we'll just, we can end it with this. Batman probably will not be as bad as cats. Yes, true, true. You you want to talk about uh, any kind of like body dysmorphia or body image issues. Um, Maybe there should have been more issues with cats and how trained everyone was on that. 
because we got to see almost everything. So at least Pattinson will have a good black leather outfit that thankfully won't be as skin tight. We're going to find out that's going to be a CG animated Batman suit. <laughs> oh, God. The Not enough muscle. Adamant. Wait, isn't that kind of like, in a sense, what they did with um, Affleck's? Because Affleck's looks kind of animated. Uh, I know on films they uh, take liberties with CG to, to tweak certain things. So I wouldn't put it past them that they might have bulked up uh, Ben Affleck in post. At least, but you know, as long as it's nothing like, uh, let's say, Cyborg, which I despised. Oh, yeah. Like, don't go that far with the CG, and I'm cool. Yeah, no, at least this Batman looks a little more down to earth. Um, But I mean, I I think this still raises, like, the overall case of, you know, whether or not our heroes, whether or not our protagonists need to be at um, the, the, the upper hierarchy of what humans can be. And another place where we're seeing this and a little bit of controversy is in wrestling. You know, our favorite subject that we like to go back to (laughs) again and again, Um, again. Now, of course, in the uh, two weeks that uh, we had from the last episode to this, we ended up having a wrestling pay-per-view money in the bank. Yes, it was a pay-per-view. It was a show. This was a shit show, but in a good way. I, I mean, the undercard was pretty much nothing, but the fact that they went ahead and had like the men's and women's uh, ladder match for the Money in the Bank briefcases happening at the same time in Titan Tower, the main corporate building of WWE, it led to some great zany comedic moments. Um, I don't know if you got to watch much of it yourself. I didn't watch but- any of it. I mean, there was certainly some good clips. Um, uh, There was uh, AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan breaking into Mr. McMahon's office and then having to reset the chairs and everything because they were all intimidated. Uh, Rey Mysterio Uh, died. Brother Love showed up in the bathroom, doinked the clown. That was not doinked the clown. Uh, There was a a food fight in the conservative, well, cafeteria. With with Paul Heyman sitting in the middle of it. Yeah, Paul Heyman just getting splattered. And it's like, it, it was comedy gold. You know, it, it was pretty much like they utilized the space as best as they could. Then yeah, there was even some murders once they, everyone got up to the roof. <laughs> Bye Ray Mysterio. Well, they're trying to kill his career, so it's coming close. Um, yeah, but Alistair Black. Oh boy. I don't know what's going on with a lot of this stuff right now, but uh, I with WWE, I can understand uh, why I go for a gimmick like that. Like, you need a reason to attract people, and right now, no one's really interested in their shows. In fact, uh, Raw hit one of the lowest ever in its... Uh, how many years has it been on TV now? 25? Almost 30 years? Um, uh, yeah, actually, I'd say... 27 years. Yeah. And... It just hits lowest ratings because people just don't want to watch a show right now. It's it's very really boring without an audience and and bad writing. So this was kind of interesting. I saw I saw some of the highlights of this so, uh, from uh, Wrestling Regret and as well as uh, Jim Cornette talking about it a little bit. But oh, we'll get to Cornette later. Don't even start on that motherfucker. <laughs> well, Cornette has something to say all the time. Anyway, uh, I don't know. It was. It was a show. Uh, it sounded interesting, but eh, not interesting right. enough for me to renew my 
uh, WWE Network account. But the point of the segue here is that I think the result of the match and everything that's come from it has pretty much been on the side of spectacle. Not so much uh, the person that won is the person that should have won. And that's mostly because not even so much um, the women's championship uh, in regards to the women's match that uh, that happened at the same time. We'll get to that one. I think that should be its own separate subject. The male winner uh, was not any of, I'd say, the favorites for the thing. It was Otis. Yes. uh, A.K.A. Otis Dovovich. A.K.A. the big bearded overweight goofball of the tag team heavy machinery uh, and possible love interest of Mandy Rose. Although I can't see it. It's well, it's funny. It's like, it's the only thing that people have kind of locked onto recently with WWE television has been that storyline. And I think that's primarily why he ended up winning the match because they recognize like, Oh, this character's kind of hot right now. Let's just kind of milk it while he while he is hot. But uh, and that's the only time he'll ever be called hot. Um, yeah, and it's not really a great storyline. But look what what else do they have going on right now? Seriously, well, I mean, you think of the competitors that were in that match. Any one of them could have utilized the money in the bank briefcase. But who's really but got the best storyline going right now? That uh, you would go like, oh, that would be the best person to have. With the uh, the briefcase, AJ and Brian don't really need it. Uh, Corbin should be nowhere near the world heavyweight championship scene. I hate the fact <laughs> that he is, and yet he does have a match this coming week against Drew McIntyre, which bothers me. Uh, <laughs> here, here's the thing: I don't know what you're gonna say about Jim Cornette. Uh, I think he is well, very. The, the Jim Cornette comes on the women's side, so. Well, I'm, I'm... I think he's a very out of touch person. And yes, if you're talking about his comments on his podcast about uh, Becky Lynch, yes, <laughs> I think I, I actually listened to that portion of the show and I'm like, Jim, I, I think it's time for you to go away for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, let's focus on. But Otis he does. Here for he a does. Second, he does, he makes the same a mindset. Jim Cornette Otis. makes Jim Cornette makes a good point though on. Uh, at least certain characters. And I'm going to say with Baron Corbin, he, he's a weak character. No one really wants to watch him. He loses a lot. And suddenly he has a world title match against a new world champion. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I think the only reason Corbin is being utilized in that sense is because when you look at the main roster, heel wise, there are very few hardcore heels. Baron is a hardcore heel. That's debatable, but um, he's a well, heel. I mean, compare him to other heels that we have going on. Compare him to, like, say, Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins is kind of like, he's a heel, but he's not hated. You yeah, look but at other th- ones, like maybe Dolph Ziggler. Dolph Ziggler is a heel for sure, and yet certainly there are enough people that are, like, behind him where they're thinking, yeah, this whole thing with Otis is a little crazy, Maybe Dolph should be the guy in, you know, in playing all of this. And that, that's the thing, too. Dolph is, uh, in my opinion, a, he's a good worker, and this is time, his time that he should be shining, but they're still treating him as like a gateway to the next level of wrestlers. Like, he would have been better in a world championship spot at this given point in time than a Baron Corbin, I think. Right. 
And I think that's the problem that you have there. Like the few people that you could really go ahead and put up against any face and it be an adequate match, or at least it'd be like a legitimate reason for one person to be against another. And then you have like, you know, your, your black versus your white, your good versus your evil. Baron Corbin is your ultimate evil in a sense. Whereas <sighs> on the opposite end, Otis is like your super baby face. Everybody loves his chubby little face kind of, you know, good guy. <laughs> so I just find guys that cheeks and pull, pull, pull. Uh, oh, don't act like people wouldn't. No, I'm not. I'm, that's why I'm making the joke. Yeah. Uh, but with the, I don't know. Uh, Otis, I think is going to be a, I'm not trying to insult him here, but he's a bit of a flash in the pan. I think, I think, People are going to like him for a bit, and then he he's going to kind of lose some of that popularity. Um, well, you even look at what happened on SmackDown this past Friday. You know, we, we finally got Otis after Money in the Bank uh, going ahead and showing off the briefcase. And they made him look like uh, he was inept. They make him look like a fish out of water, like he didn't know what to do or what to say or how to react. Uh, talking about how he's got like, you know, Rollades and gas sacks in the briefcase for him, as well as a piece of salami if he gets hungry. He doesn't have his tag team partner with him because obviously he's being pushed for more for singles, which really sucks for Tucker Knight. Um, can barely get himself a tag partner, and he does it in Braun Strowman with, you know, I don't know what reasoning. And he actually went ahead and was like almost attempting to roll up Braun Strowman now that he was behind him. Oh, it's just a goof. I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, it, look, I've got nothing against comedic faces. I don't. Some, some of the best performers in WWE and wrestling in general are those that can go ahead and put on like a good shoot and yet can also be comedic. That's where you entertain everybody. But the validity of him being the one that has like the keys to the castle. No, there is no way he is going to use this briefcase properly. This has got to be an angle where he ends up getting screwed over. And yet he is being pushed to the point where he is the, the main hero of the masses. And I use masses as a very loose word. Yeah. I think he's going to have a Damon, uh, Damon Sendow moment where he's going to lose his opportunity. I think he might even be one because he's super baby face. I have a feeling that he's going to call his match where it's going to be like a Rob Van Dam did rather than just say like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to wait for my moment. And then when you're at your weakest, I'm going to pull out this briefcase because it wouldn't work for that character in my opinion. Right. But that's the thing. Like this is, this is probably going to be the most heartbreaking loss of a money in the bank winner. Cause either he's going to lose just the opportunity to, uh, scheming or machinations of somebody else whether it be uh you know Dolph or anybody else who knows or he's gonna put himself in a situation where he has to go up against a champion and it's not gonna end well well you know what if they do it right and i know wwe is not really good at that these days if you do it right i think you could get away with it if you have a major heel who comes in and screws over the babyface uh, champion, our babyface uh, top contender, you can start a brand new feud right there or reignite an old one if you put Dolph Ziggler in that role. Um, I think it could work out. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. 
I saw some people getting really upset about Otis, and I know I was kind of making it seem like I'm, I, I, I'm fine with Otis with that role. Again, he's like, he is kind of like the top hot baby face right now, but he, it's not going to last. I think they need to kind of uh, do whatever they're going to do with that briefcase sooner than later and not have him hold on to it very long. I think it's just weird to see because let's face it, WWE has never really been kind to protagonists of a larger variety. Nine times out of 10, if WWE has a guy of like considerable mass and is not exactly the most in shape, usually that guy gets put into like the heel position. Look at Yokozuna, look at Big Show, look at Vader, uh, Big Viss. You know, big guys of that size and stature are usually looked at as the bad guy, per Vince McMahon. And yet, even when there is like an overweight baby face that gets over, like say a Dusty Rhodes, Vince will go out of his way to probably do things and make him look ridiculous, i.e. the the polka-dotted suit. With exception, and I think those exceptions are when they're desperate. Like, for instance, Mick Foley being the WWE champion three times. Mick Foley never had a body that should have ever been a world champion. He should have never been made a WWE world champion in the eyes of someone like Vince McMahon. But in the time that he did become champion, it was because they were in a different time and they had to do different things in order to steal viewership away from competition. In this case scenario, they, they don't really have competition. Let's not pretend AEW isn't. But uh, AEW, AEW, but with AEW. that said, uh, they are competing just for TV ratings whatsoever. Uh, again, they're losing a lot of ratings right now. So if they're like, crap, we're, we're really bad. NBC could kill us. Fox could kill us. Uh, hey, this dude, I like, I don't like how he looks, but people seem to like him. Let's just, let's milk, milk whatever he has right now. And when he's done, we'll push him back to the lower card or put him back in the tag team. I think that's what their plan is for Otis right now. Uh, I know, I speak- it just doesn't seem fair to Otis in, in that sense, you know? Well, you know, another thing that uh, doesn't seem fair is uh, Shayna Baszler, who is this tough women's wrestler and uh, had an opportunity at WrestleMania to become WWE champion. And she didn't become WWE champion. And then things happened. So, yeah. So it's funny. Let's let's get to the women's side here. Yeah. So we're talking about um, Otis with his briefcase and like what he's going to do with it. Like Asuka's kind of got cashed in immediately now, didn't it? Well, first, let's say Asuka did deserve to win. All right. As much as it does suck that Shayna Baszler is obviously been portrayed as a much more dominant personality between Shayna Baszler and Asuka. You've probably got the two most dominant women of the NXT era. Cause even Becky wasn't that dominant back when she was in NXT. No, but either Asuka or Shayna, as far as championship reigns, as far as undefeated streaks, but NXT so, doesn't really count that much. Let's, let's be honest. How no, many, true, how many true, people true. have been but dominant in NXT like and then moved up to the to main Raw roster and, and has been at, the main all program. dominant. They never Whereas been. Asuka has been, Oscar's been a workhorse during this whole quarantine era. He, she's been one. She's been a workhorse, but I mean, she's been jobbed around for most of her time on the main roster. Her first year is the only time where she was kind of on that undefeated streak. And then after that, she was kind of like lost in limbo. Even the tag team division. It's like, they didn't seem to really have much for her there. 
Right. But as far as being consistent, I mean, again, talking like in a vacuum, talking about what has been going on the last couple of months, Asuka has been there. She's been putting in the work. And if you're going to go ahead and give somebody that much of a boost, you go to the person who's put in the effort. She put in the effort, but, you know, at the same time, I think uh, the young blood of uh, Shayna Baszler would have been better. Like, you know, you have your top baby face going away for probably a very long time. Could be forever. Well, let's it touch could on be, why. Well, I'll touch on let me Let me finish my point. Uh, you have your top baby face going away, possibly forever. But if she does come back, which will probably happen within a year by WrestleMania, you should have Shayna Baszler on top, your dominant heel, destroying everyone else in her path from Asuka to Nat- Natalie to, and you have a whole bunch of other women wrestlers there that you can put against Shayna. And then you get to WrestleMania where Becky can return and then you can have that match. However way it goes, doesn't matter, but just have that top baby face versus now this very dominant year long heel heel would have been a great matchup. Uh, but instead, what you have is you kind of just give it to Asuka. And the champion doesn't get beat. And again, the champion might not come back. I I just don't think it worked really well. Now, okay, so you want to get into why Becky's going away. Do you want to well, say it? The whole thing of it is, it's like, I think this all does kind of play in to making Shayna better. Don't think I'm counting Shayna Baszler out. I'm not. Not in any way, shape, or form. But... Um, how are they going to make it better? If you're going to go ahead and you're going to vacate the championship and you're going to go ahead and get put it in someone else's hands, you do it to relatively somebody that you can uh, you know, show respect to, that gives you a good way of getting out of this limelight. And then but she was a heel. It makes Shayna that much more determined to want to break everything down to get that belt. Because now that it's not going to be on Becky, it's going to be on Asuka. You've got enough that you can work with to actually work up a feud between the two. And by the time WrestleMania comes around, I have no doubt that Shayna will be holding on to the championship at that point. I think the only way this could have something to work with. I think the only way this could really work at this point is if for the next pay-per-view is going to be Shayna Baszler versus Asuka and Shayna totally dominates Asuka at that pay-per-view. Not that Asuka is one of my, probably my favorite women's wrestler at the moment, at least on the WWE roster. I don't really want to see her get jobbed out, but at this point in time, storyline wise, I think that would be the best option. And you beat someone like Asuka so quickly and so dominantly will set you up as the true champion. Um, but yeah, I don't want to drag them. At, I don't want this to drag out, and I don't really want Oscar to hold that belt very long. Because I, I just chances they, are I probably won't. Because I mean, the next pay per view coming up is SummerSlam, so I'm sure whatever match goes on is going to be a spectacle in itself. The next pay per view is SummerSlam. Uh the next big one. Okay, next. Uh, pay- at least as far as I've heard, any planning. Well, I'm not talking about the next big one. I'm talking about like the next pay per view, whatever the next big event is, like. Give Shayna the belt there. And don't have a match either. Don't have a match, and then you're going to drag it out where uh, Asuka gets away with the skin of her teeth. Don't have Shayna lose any matches between now and WrestleMania in the uh, event that Becky does come back. Right. I mean, I don't don't know if they're going to throw Shayna right into the mix, but have her Shayna definitely work up that uh, resume to want to be number one contender. So this way she is the first big crack in the armor. Um, well, who else are you going to put against her, right? What other major heels do you have on the roster to put against Asuka? Um, 
Well, are we talking like overall roster or are we talking just the raw roster? roster? Because you can't really count the people on SmackDown. Well, I mean, as far as the roster is concerned, uh, we did have the Iconics come back. Or no, wait, is that SmackDown or is that Raw? That's that's Raw, right? I don't even know anymore. This this is how little I care about WWE <laughs> shows. Um, well, you like have I said, Jax, you have Tamina. Um, again, I don't know who's Smack. Well, mind you, that that doesn't almost doesn't even matter because with Fox and USA, they're competing with the brand, so it's like people are switching uh, all over. So all right, really, me- any heel woman is capable. Who knows? They may even bring up like one or two NXT people now because there is a vacation uh, in the main roster uh, with Becky Lynch leaving. Which matches aside, the the whole reason that this is even in conversation is because uh, when Oscar went ahead and won the the right to face the champion at Money in the Bank, uh, she got more than she bargained for. And in the briefcase was actually the Raw Women's Championship because Becky Lynch is now vacating the company to become a mother. She's vacating the championship to become a mother. I think she's still technically under contract with the company. Well, I'm not saying she won't do like maybe appearances or something, but as far as being an active competitor, uh, yeah, because She's he can't going to be doing any of that because unless you're Paige's mother, you don't wrestle while you're pregnant. Um, <laughs> Those Brits, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Becky. Uh, one, you and I are Irish, so go Irish. Oi, uh, oi, oi. And uh, I'm a big fan of her and I've, I've liked her matches. I liked her character over the last one, two years that she's been her, this most popular um, it's kind of sad to see her go, but you know, I'm happy for her. Um, I have nothing really bad to say about her in that. But then again, I'm at a point where I don't watch WWE anymore. So it, the entire roster could quit and it's not going to really have an effect on me right now. <laughs> no, but I mean, in times like this, it's nice to have that good feeling story. You know, Becky Lynch, the man is going to be a mom. That was trending for the entire evening when it came out that Monday. And having been someone that was lucky enough to actually meet Becky Lynch and talk Ireland with her. And she actually influenced my last vacation to Ireland and telling me I had to go see uh fungi, the dolphin, the dolphin of Dingle. Um, <laughs> yes. That's an actual real thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's nice to see that they can go ahead and still have these kind of happy moments in life. Um, with everything that's going on. Even Seth is probably going to be taking some type of a sabbatical as he is uh, texted out and t- tweeted out. Uh, WWE has paternity he's leave, be right? actually caring for Becky while she's you know taking care of the baby. So he's not going to be as active a competitor either. And it, it just feels good because when was the last time you actually heard of a woman competitor proclaiming on television, hey, I'm having a baby. So I'm going to have to leave usually. And when someone says something like that, they're leaving because they're too injured and they have to retire or uh, they've got leukemia and they have to go ahead and take care of themselves. You never hear of someone leaving for this good of a reason. No, and no, you don't, you don't. It, it, mm. It's a happy story. Come on. Come on. I can see you want to smile. Come on. Come on, I, I can see it in the camera. Here, I'm going to just talk so you're, the camera's looking at me. I'm smiling right now. 
gotcha. I got gotcha. right. uh, No, again, I'm I'm very happy for them, and I'm happy she's having a kid. Like uh, she's she and her husband are like at the top of the game. They probably have a lot of money set aside, and with everything going on, like it's it's not a, a terrible time to have a kid right now. Well, unless you're uh, Jim Cornette, then he thinks uh, this was yeah, a terrible okay. idea. Let, let's get to this. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know you were going to bring up Jim Cornette. So. This motherfucker. See, whenever people want to go ahead and knock on wrestling, this is the fuel to that fire. This sort of <laughs> nonsense right here. Uh, do, do you actually have it, uh, the quote that he said? Because I have it here. I, I screen captured this because... You have to read this verbatim in order to understand <laughs> the menace that Jim Cornette is. Uh, no, I do not have the quote in front of me. You want to read it? Yes. And now I, I want to specify this to the audience. You will be hearing all this relatively out of context. I am not Jim Cornette. These are not my words. These are his words. I am repeating them verbatim. So this way you all can understand what exactly is his viewpoint, and you don't hate me. All right, let me make this clear. Jim's words, not mine. Okay. I'm going to put these on YouTube without that uh, that in there. Don't you? Uh, duh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> now, he goes, and I quote of Jim Cornette, quotes, You can't always be on top of the wrestling business in a one million a year spot or more. But you can have a baby. What is she? Can she be 30? She's actually 33. Uh, Well, she's still got many more years before the fucking Easy Bake Oven gets shut off. She can have all those problems like a descended stomach and stretch marks and hemorrhoids and hormones problems. He actually does say hormones, not hormone problems, hormones problems. And mood swings and all those other joys of motherhood later when she ain't making a million dollars a year. She's got plenty of time left. What would you do if your wife came home and said, instead of making a million dollars next year, I'm going to basically just be a raging bitch. think I lost you there, buddy. Ryan, you back? What, wait, you, did you lose me? Yeah, I lost you at Raging Bitch. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, yeah, it, it did say connection cut out. But <laughs> uh, to finish that sentence, uh, going to be basically just a Raging Bitch for the next nine months and then give you more shit to worry about around the house. So... That that is the words of Jim Cornette, who I have to believe at this point, it's been so long since they've had sex that he's forgotten what it's like to be around women. He actually is married. That poor, poor woman. <laughs> Apparently they are in love with each other. Anyway, though, um, I think the problem with Jim is and, and actually I was uh, yesterday I was watching a Shawn Michaels uh, high spot interview where Jim Cornette was brought up. And uh, I think what Shawn Michaels said then holds very true today, which is Jim Cornette is a very conservative 
uh, very uh, afraid of change wrestler. He was from a, a begone time, which, and I'm not saying this is an excuse at all. I'm just saying like, he's just someone very set in his ways and he's, he's going to die by the sword because he, uh, like he's someone who will not change in a time that people need to change. Uh, this is not the first time that he's talked this way about uh, women in wrestling. I've, I hate to say it, I do listen to this podcast. There's, it, it's sort of like how people who hate Howard Stern listen to Howard Stern. I listen to Jim Cornette because I'd say, like, what the hell are you going to say about wrestling this week? What so things you're, are you're a masochist, basically? A little bit. Um, some things he says I do kind of agree with. Uh, it's uh, there's an old episode of South Park where they're making fun of all the. Uh, modern film directors and how bad filmmakers they were. But when they got to Mel Gibson, they pointed out like, well, he's crazy as shit, but he knows story structure. And that's sort of the thing I can say about Jim Cornette. He, there are times where he will point out something in wrestling and why it sucks. And you kind of go, yeah, I can see that. But his views on certain things, and I'm going to focus right now on women's wrestling are very, very out of date. Anytime he brings up women's wrestling, he talks about how it's not a main event spot, how no one's there to watch the women wrestlers. How, and he actually doesn't call them women's wrestlers. It's just the, the girl wrestlers. Um, it's like, I, they shouldn't be there, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, it's, no, they're the main events now. A lot of times people watch specifically for them. They have some of the best storylines. A lot of them actually are really good professional wrestlers. Uh, he's, he's very out of date. And I think terms like this too, talking about someone who's, uh, wants to have a child. It's like, you can't tell when someone's ready. This is those two decided they're ready right now. They have a lot of money and, uh, she can, she's accomplished everything. Why does she need to stick around? She has done everything that you want to accomplish as a pro wrestler. I think and now her priorities have changed and good for her on that. He's a shit bag. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I get maybe back in his day, there was importance, but I'm now not defending he's him. Coming to I the point, point like of Vince Russo. Huh? He's becoming Vince Russo. He, mm. He's just mentally unhinged. I, I would say he's a he's a very opposite of Vince Russo. I I've met people like Jim Cornette in my lifetime. I've met people like Vince Russo in my lifetime. I'm not saying I've met either of those gentlemen personally myself, but just from what I've heard of them and listened to them uh, from interviews over the years, I know those personalities. They're both douchebags, but they're different types of douchebags. A bag is a bag. <laughs> you throw it in the garbage. I don't know. Like I said, I I don't agree with his comments uh, on this case. It's just like, okay, I can I can see you making fun of uh, Kenny Omega. I can see you making fun of the Young Bucks, but the the fact that you have such out of date views of women wrestling and to a degree women, uh, I I think I think you should stay in your lane, Jim. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. At least when he was commenting on them, he was commenting on their work structure and how they were in the ring and stuff like that. This has nothing to do with Becky as a wrestler. This has to do with Becky's private life. Yes. Her personal experiences. Not just for her, but for her and Seth to an extent. And also, uh, 
And again, this is not really a defense on this, but this is right after like all the attacks that uh, someone such as Michael Bloomberg got for all this stuff. You would think people would learn their lesson, but Jim is Jim. Someone likes to dig his heels to bad ideas. Jim Jim thinks he's Teflon just because he's got like that lineage behind him and everything. And I think I I guess the same could be said for a lot of the old guard when it comes to like people that came in during like you know you know, the eighties and early nineties of wrestling when that was their prominence. I think Jim thinks he's Teflon because he's got this show that makes him a ton of money. He has his audience that will follow him no matter what. And, uh, yeah, until, like Rush Limbaugh almost. yeah, actually very much like Rush Limbaugh. And until someone cancels his show, it, he's going to just keep saying stuff because he knows that's what people are tuning in for. Well, I'm right, not. I'm, I'm tuning in he's for him. He's going to push the envelope until it gets pushed too far. He's never going to be like, okay, okay, I've done enough. Like a smart person. No, no, no. He's he's going to remember also, this is a guy that when he was working in professional wrestling was purposely going out and pissing people off to the point that they were trying to shoot him and stab him. So what point can he really push people these days? Oh, uh, just over a cliff. Push him over a cliff. Just, oh. uh, well, that that's my thoughts on professional wrestling, and I probably won't have any Anyway, more congratulations, Becky. That's all that needs to be said. Yep. Becky and Asuka, to be honest. <laughs> what, is Asuka having the child? No, but obviously she's reaping all the benefits. <laughs> I say uh, congratulations to Becky and Seth, because, uh, yeah, remember, Seth is part of this as well. Well, yeah, I mean... It's funny enough. I'm not telling too many tales outside of school, but I actually know somebody who did hook up with Seth Rollins back in the day. Okay. So I almost kind of want to like nudge her a little bit and be like, so did you see the light? You know, you could be making money. Uh, You know what? Don't, don't go on a defense there and then say something else you're going to regret. Yeah, no, I know. I know. That's just more to joke on her and everything, but, um, Yes, congratulations. It's one of those things where I hope this just ends on a happy note for everybody. I don't want this to get thrown through any muck or mire or anything. I I don't want this to be like a continuing thing where it's going to be like Becky Lynch versus Jim Cornette via Twitter for like months on end. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> I, 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 hope think, not. I think I think really Becky. I, I think she's going to have the time to do so. Yeah, I think Becky's going to be ignoring Jim. If she doesn't, well, that'll be some entertaining stuff on Twitter for a while. Either way, they're professional wrestlers. And uh, Becky, I wish her the best. And Seth, I wish her in the best. And Asuka, you're probably going to lose that belt very soon. And then Otis. Otis. <laughs> Otis, keep on worming. Keep on trucking. Trucking! Ah. All right. So now that we've got our main topics out of the way, we wanted to go ahead and do something a little bit uh, different. And since we're of uh, two minds of things, uh, in regards to filling up the rest of the episode, we figured it would be nice if we went ahead and tried this little experiment where both JT and I ended up with our own little personal segments for JT and Big O. So this way we have our collaborative efforts at the beginning, and then we showcase a little bit something that's primarily ourselves. And uh, JT, you have something for us today, do you not? So, as part of an experiment to try some different segments, uh, I was kind of asked to what segment I would like to do, and I had to think about it a little bit. 
And I realized that while uh, as a filmmaker, I've never really done anything animation wise. I'm not a good artist and uh, I've never really dove into that realm. I've always been a fan of animation. It'd be not just anime, but Canadian, American, French, you name it. Uh, Animation has always been something that's just been very appealing to me. And so my segment is going to be called uh, Getting Animated with JT. I was playing around with uh, animation titillation, but I figured that might not go over too well. Um, I, I like either one, to be honest. <laughs> and, you know, I think the titillation actually adds a little bit of like risque to this. But no, getting animated works perfectly. I like it. So for the first thing that I wanted to use for this segment, uh, basically we were off last week and whenever I get some time off, if I can't leave the house, as a lot of us can't right now, uh, I like to kind of sit down and I'll probably binge watch on some TV show. And for this time, I because I had a few hours to kill, I decided to check out an anime on Netflix. If you didn't know, and we did mention this on a previous show, Netflix does have a ton of animes on there and other original animations. So the one I decided to choose was one called Cannon Busters. So just to get into the show a little bit, uh, basically the plot line is that there's an android. Her name is Sam. And uh, within a battle in her homeland, she's been separated from uh, Prince. I'm just going to. I have to take a quick look because apparently the some of these characters have more than one name, and I'll get into a reason why in a bit. Uh, she's separated from Prince Kelby, and now she needs to get her find her way back to him. And on the way, she starts making friends and also enlists the help of a legendary outlaw by the name of Philly the Kid. Pretty much, that is what tra- that's what I read when uh, just before I decided to watch it. I'm like, that sounds like Trigon. That sounds like Cowboy Bebop. That sounds like Samurai Shampoo. I'm in. And very much, uh, Big O, have you ever watched Samurai Shampoo? Yes, I have. It had a dope soundtrack to it. What do you think about the the story and the animation and the characters? Of Samurai Shampoo specifically? Yes. Um, I think it was good product for its time. I don't know if maybe an updated reboot would play nowadays because it really was just in like that whole era where like uh, traditional sword playing, as, you know, samurai stuff really went ahead and was popular. You look at things like um, Inuyasha, Samurai Champloo, Bleach back when it was premiering. Well, uh, Guys with Swords was just all the rage. Well, I don't want to get too wet. Wait, 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 wait. I don't want to get too away from the original topic. I just wanted to see if you get, had a general idea of what you thought of the show. But not, not to I focus. I liked it. There you okay. go. I liked it. So uh, a lot of what this show is, it's set in an environment that I was originally going to say very Trigon-ish, but I, it's, it's well beyond that. And uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's, it's a very rich world where each land in it has its own feel. Like, it starts off in a very cowboy-type world, and then they get to an area where they're starting to meet samurai in here, and then they meet a futuristic world, sort of an underground garbage world, and then, like, uh, the land itself that this uh, androids come from is this very peaceful, harmony-type world. I keep saying world. I should say lands, because it's the same world. They're in the same planet. Uh, But it's, it's... 
I won't say it's unique, but it's definitely interesting. It's one of those, like, if you're a big fan of Samurai Champloo, if you're a big fan of of Trigun, of Cowboy Bebop, uh, this is definitely a show you would probably want to check out. It's actually another interesting thing. It is an anime. It was actually produced by the South Korean studio, um, and I wrote it down, and now it's gone. <laughs> All right. Well, it's made by South Korean studio. I'll mention that as some other time. Uh, the creator of it, though, is LaShawn Thompson. And what's very interesting here with him is he's actually an American, but he's the director of multiple productions for the South Korean company. In fact, he lives in South Korea, and he's known for other shows such as Black Dynamite, Legend of Korra, uh, the Boondocks, and oh, he actually, wow. yeah, and he actually has some other stuff on Netflix coming out, including uh, sometime in the next year or two, a new show called uh, y- Yasuke. So he he's a very busy dude, and he's got a lot of stuff on his resume. This though, this apparently was one of his pet projects, something that he's had on his plate uh, since two thousand and three. So this has been something that he's always kind of wanted to do, and it was because of all those other shows I just mentioned coming out that this ended up going on the back burner. It was actually originally an American comic book, and I think what the first few episodes had was what the comic kind of was, and when they went kind of to the animation, it changed up a little bit, uh, including the names. Like that, That's why I'm getting confused on the names here. Like uh, Sam was originally Sam Barry, and I'm kind of all over the place uh, with this. Like I said, this is why I shouldn't be in charge of a segment. Um, no, but I like it because for, for someone who watches anime as well, it's nice to be given like this full-fledged idea of something that maybe I haven't watched yet. And yeah, and I'm sounding like that excited kid right now about it, but it, is, it was definitely a good anime. Now, it did have its flaws, um, and I, I always, you guys listen to me in the past, I always, even if I love something, I was like, well, this could have been better. But overall... I really enjoyed it. I think if it's, and I'll actually throw another one in there too. Afro Samurai. Uh, mm. I gotta say this show is surprisingly violent. I think when I turned it on, I was thinking a lot more Trigun, which had Vash the Stampede, who was a very peaceful character. But like in the first minute of the show, you're basically in this futuristic outlaw cowboy type uh, city and are, they they ha- they show some uh, guys playing cards, and suddenly something happens where they all stand up and start pointing guns at each other, and the one who's in focus on the camera points the gun at his head, and then we switch to another camera shot, and you hear a gunshot off camera. I'm like, did they just have someone commit suicide in the first minute of this TV series? Is this well, where that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about because you went through uh, the resume of shows that the guy has done, and I think I've no, I've seen Black Dynamite and I've seen uh, Boondocks, uh, practically own all the seasons. Um, is this a mature anime, or is this something that maybe is a little bit more for general audiences? Uh, there is no nudity, but yeah, this is definitely for mature audiences. There is a lot of blood, a lot of. Uh, gruesome kills and deaths. The main character of uh, Philly, the kid, his big thing is he's immortal. Basically he's killed and he comes back to life. And in the first, again, in the first five minutes of the show, there, someone puts a shotgun through his chest and you see everything. You see the bones and the guts and stuff and it just regenerates. But again, yeah, it's not a show that you're going to want to show to little kids. (laughs) 
So wait, he, he's immortal, but it's not the kind of immortal where he can't die. It's that in order to be immortal, he has to die first. He, it, there, this is also, it's another thing I didn't mention that magic is ex- exists in this, uh, this anime. So okay. he, at some point finds a wizard or some, someone who knows magic and he places on him, uh, the curse of immortality so that he can get revenge against his enemies, which he does not. Uh, <laughs> this character is very much the Mugen of the series. Uh, he's, he's not actually a skilled fighter. He, what? His skill is pretty much he can't die, and he's a, a giant asshole. So he, he just he just shoots people up and stuff like that. I, I actually hate to say it, like I love the character, but he doesn't have any redeeming qualities either. So I don't know how many people are generally gonna like him. I'm so he's the character you love to hate a little bit. He he's not like he's still like one of the he's the main male lead of this series. I would definitely say Sam, uh, the android, she is the actual star of the show, even though the focus isn't always on her. She is the titled cannon buster. This is a very unique character, in my opinion, because uh, she's uh, this very sweet, naive, uh, friendly girl. The, the first the thing her objective is to make friends with everyone. But the thing is, when she makes friends with you, you're her friend. And if someone tries to hurt or kill you. She instantly goes into the, this death mode and turns into like this giant deadly weapon that just destroys whoever's trying to hurt her friends. So basically, she's in a sense a demonic possessed doll that will defend her owner to death. Yes and no. She's actually it, they try to set up the character that she's got a lot of human qualities, like she's got empathy. She sleeps for some reason, even though she's an android. But um, but when she goes into this death mode, she doesn't have any recollection of it after it's over. It's like her brain shuts down. She goes into weapon mode and kills whatever she needs to kill. And then when she's done, she goes back to bubbly, uh, uh, friendly self. Cute. Uh, so it's pretty much just the two of them going off and, uh, I guess, looking for the prince. Yes, actually, there is a third character, and the only reason I didn't mention it, because uh, even though she does play some big parts here and there, she's still, in my opinion, not a big, big character. Uh, Casey Turnbuckle, which is another android, a little smaller, and she's like the third component of this group, and she fixes things, and she antagonizes Philly the Kid. Oh, so she's like the comedy relief. Yes, uh... Well, Philly the Kid's really the comedy relief because he's, <laughs> he's, again, Mugen. Uh, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I keep I forgot about this one because it's not really a character, but still another cool aspect of the show is Betsy, which is Philly the Kid's car, which uh, once you insert quarters into it, don't ask me how this works, but once you insert quarters into it, it turns into a giant bull-type mecha, which can beat the hell out of anything. What the fuck? Wait, wait, hold on. Oh, wait. So, okay, you got the android. Yes. You got the smaller android. Yes. You've got the immortal gunslinger. Yes. And now there's a mecha that needs quarters? Yes. It can only transform if you put in four quarters into it. And it's, and it's like an arcade station, too. They don't explain how this works or why this is like gas. Like, once you put quarters in, they never come back. I don't know who's collecting the quarters. It's like it's fuel for this thing. I, I, what I feel is... This again, LaShawn Thompson, I think he came up with all these really cool concepts and he just kind of threw them together. 
but I don't think he had any end goal of what he was going to do with this series. And it, it shows in this anime. It's a cool anime. I loved watching it. But by the end of the series, I'm like, some of this didn't make sense. <laughs> it was cool, but I didn't know where to, they were to going. To Black Dynamite, he threw that shit before he got into the room. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, that like I could just keep going through the characters and they would all sound cool. I never even got to nine the samurai who's like unstoppable. But I would say if uh, if you have a day where you can sit down and binge some anime or even just watch the first three or four episodes, I think I think you would enjoy them. If you're a fan of Samurai Champloo, if you're a fan of Boondocks, Black Dynamite, I think you'll like this as well. All right. Definitely worth a check out. Uh, I, I, I may need to be somewhat inebriated by one... Uh foreign paraphernalia or the other but i'll certainly check it out okay <laughs> it seems like it's warranted for that sort of thing man it's like wow uh that that's a lot to take in it's crazy it's <laughs> not it's not really set up like to be a uh out of this world like crazy type thing like uh axe cop or something like that but it is it's just someone throwing a whole bunch of cool shit together and like let's see what happens fair enough fair enough all right so um that was jt's subject uh getting animated very much enjoyed it can't wait for the next one um now i guess uh we have to go to mine which um, we have to while i was coming up with the idea of something uh, i wanted to go ahead and actually revisit something that i kind of did back in the day before jt and big o and it was kind of like a little concept i have with movies because as an actor as a performer as a comic you know it's all about like movies for me so I wanted to go ahead and do a little segment that kind of showcased like the full spectrum of cinema, past, present, future. And that's why I've come up with Big O's The Three to See. So basically, I'm going to give you three little movie tidbits, uh, something from the past, something from the present, and something for the future. Three particular films that you should go ahead and check out for yourself. Uh, now, not doing them in any specific... Well, I am doing it in a specific order, but I'm not doing it in the chronological order. Um, first thing I want to mention is, uh, for the future, we have Unhinged, which is the new Russell Crowe movie that is actually going to be the first theatrical release, actually in theaters, um, of this year, uh, beating out Tenant from Christopher Nolan, uh, which was originally slated for July 15th, this movie, Unhinged, is coming out July 1st. The trailer just dropped this week, uh, and it's basically one of those typical, okay, there's a little uh, road rage happening on the highway. You know, one person was being rude to another, and it is taken to such a crazy, far-out extreme that this just looks like it's going to be stupid, violent fun, especially with Russ Crowe being like, He's not in his gladiator days anymore. He, he's kind of more, um, uh, I don't want to say over the hill, but this has pretty much put him in like that Liam Neeson category where he's like, he's just old enough and out of date and out of, you know, out of uh, physical fitness enough, but he's still a credible threat and he looks menacing in this trailer and I cannot wait to see it, especially with this being the first big thing coming out in theaters. I really want to go ahead and see something that's going to be like a thrill ride, something that's going to make me want to enjoy being amongst all those people and being in the theater again. 
I, uh, Russell Crowe is one of those people uh, on my list of, if he's in a movie, I'm not overly interested. I couldn't tell you why, but something, at some point in time, he just became kind of a bore to me. I think the last thing I saw him in that I wanted to go see was The Good Guys. Okay, yeah. No, I've, I've actually got the poster right there. There's Russell, or part of Russell's head still uh, <laughs> showing. So, yeah, the... That that was a fun movie. That that was him being like you know rough and gruff, and you, you're going to be seeing that I believe on this end or in the antagonist uh, point of view. It's not a big started cast. It's probably not going to have a lot of names that you would recognize. Russell Crowe. This is his movie, but it's going to be nice to actually see something where, you know, you know it's going to be dumb. You know it's an outlandish idea that, you know, all this stuff is going to stem from just like one minor road incident. But you want to see how crazy it gets. All right. Something to see then. Now, as far as the past, um, I was actually going through my movies the other day. Uh, my big old cabinet here that you can't see on screen. And I wanted to go ahead and revisit a movie. And I actually found one that I had purchased that I had never even watched yet. Still in the plastic. Hmm. And that would be the movie Pirate Radio. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but uh, Pirate Radio is pretty much one of those uh, British movies. I, I know we're, we're so busy, um, you know, with uh, Brits and their own kind of thing. This is one's a little bit more of a documentary-style film. Uh, takes place during the well, uh, I, I... 1950s and 60s when, like, rock music and pop music and stuff like that was kind of being outlawed in Britain. Well, not documentary biography, right? Is biography by biopic biopic. biopic. All right. Um, so instead of being on terrestrial radio, like on actually in the country, you could only listen to that kind of music. If you listened to people off in the shores, off in the ocean on a boat that were stuck there day after day after day, putting out this content for people. And it's kind of almost a little reminiscent of like what we got going on now, where everyone's pretty much just stuck at home, can't go off and do anything else. Movies aren't being made. Television isn't being made, any of that stuff. So you have to rely on this kind of like homegrown outlet, which is exactly what you get here. And the cast is superb. Um, You've got the late Philip Seymour Hoffman as like the only real American in the whole cast. Uh, Bill Nighy, Nick Frost, um, uh, Reese Eifen. Am I saying that right? Eifens, Eifens. Don't ask um, me. I'm terrible at names. The, the gangly <laughs> guy from the, you know, Notting Hill, the blonde one. Um, Reese Darby, um, Chris O'Dowd, um, Catherine um, Parkinson. Uh, if you've watched the It Crowd, you know who she is. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is basically the antagonist in this movie. It's just such a fun cast, and you see how they all just like interact with each other. It, it's less about like the political landscape of music and more just about like these overall outlandish personalities living together, working together on this little ass ship just surrounding Great Britain. And it's just a fun little romp to actually see them progress. Now, I never actually saw the film, but I do remember seeing the trailers for it. And I do remember like they, they are literally pirate radio. They are on a boat delivering radio from on the sea. I always thought that was kind of a cool concept. Yeah. And the fact that it was a real thing. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you almost think like, okay, well, this is just something they made up to play on the words. 
But no, it was legit. This is how they worked. This is how they handled. And yet, you know, just seeing what they were able to push and, you know, issues of censorship, uh, issues of personal taste, of, uh, of pretty much self-exploration and self-interest. There's a lot of underlying things, but it really the comedy pushes everything through and there's just some fun interaction. Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Reese Siphons. Those two, I would just love to have seen them clash a little bit more in some more movies because their chemistry is like beyond the pale in regards to being comrades and yet and like rivals at the same time. Uh, yeah, Aphens. Aphens, Aphens. Okay, good. I, I had to double check and make sure I was actually saying it right because the last thing I want is anyone like overseas to be like yelling at me, being like, that's not how you say it. You're American. They're going to yell at you no matter what. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, I've alluded to that fact that, you know, I, I appreciate the British. I, I love some of this stuff. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. But the dialect, man, come on, give me some credit. I'm trying. <laughs> well, we're, we're also of Irish heritage, so it's our nature to hate the British anyway. Um, yeah. I got nothing else. But yeah, I would I would highly suggest if you actually go ahead and have the opportunity to find it. Uh, I obviously I was able to get it for cheap, and I believe it was like in the the five dollar bin when I got it. And uh, I do believe it is on Amazon Prime. I don't think it's on Netflix or Hulu. But if you can find it, I highly suggest going ahead, taking a watch. You know, just get yourself a little drink and sit down, relax, zone out for a couple of hours. If you do end up buying the DVD, oh my god, the deleted scenes practically make it a whole other movie just as fun now for the present i think um considering some of the stuff we've already talked about on the show here before we kind of have to talk about scoob we do we do we really do we get a scooby uh, it did come out this past friday um you know what you've watched it as well i've watched it and um I'm going to throw something out there that I wonder if whether or not you can agree on this. Mm -hmm. Scoob is not so much a Scooby-Doo movie. I agree with that. Yeah. Now, by far, it means this is not me going ahead and disparaging the movie in any way. Um, if anything, I actually found it very enjoyable. And in fact, we're probably going to be doing a little bit of a spoilers review here. So if you don't necessarily want to hear that part, then go ahead, skip to the end of the show or something like that. But you can't really talk about Scoob without talking about how little of a Scooby-Doo, where are you sort of setup it is. And you have to talk about all the other things that this movie is because this Scoob is essentially... An amalgamation of almost every type of Scooby-Doo we've gotten, and yet is so far away from being a traditional Scooby-Doo movie. It felt more like a superhero movie than it felt like a Scooby-Doo film. Like they really, the only part where there was a mystery really seemed like the beginning where they were getting together. After that, it was just like, oh, he joins the Blue Falcon, and they have to, uh, they have to uh, find this treasure, and blah blah blah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's felt more like a treasure hunt. And as far as like the mystery of what's going on, look, let me set up the scenario. So it starts off where you see the origin of Scooby and Shaggy, how they meet, which apparently is modern times because Shaggy has a touch 
uh, pad cell phone, uh, smartphone. So I'm guessing this probably takes place at least in the last 10, 10 years, to 12 years ago. If we say we're saying things are modern here. Um, and he meets Scooby, who's just, you know, and th- this all takes place in Venice Beach, not in Coolsville, not in any scenario where we've seen the, the Scooby game before. Venice Beach. I'm like, okay, so they're definitely Californians. That makes sense. Um, we see them get together. They meet apparently on Halloween because they're shortly getting dressed for Halloween, like no more than like five minutes later. And that's when they meet Fred and Daphne and Belma, and they just happen to meet up at a haunted house, and they find that a ghost isn't a ghost, and blah, 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 blah. And that's all young pup named Scooby-Doo right there. You know, we we didn't get the kind of humor that we normally got with the show, but, I mean, that was the initial setup. And that's how a lot of it has been shown in promos. Everything we get after that is nothing like Scooby-Doo. None of it. No. And, uh... Can I just address this one point coming up? Go ahead. Why, why did they pick? I can't think of his name, but why did they pick that uh, celebrity to be the guest celebrity of? The oh, show? Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell. Yeah, that's like yeah. because the kids no can idea. associate with a with a famous guy from fifteen years ago. Well, to be fair, that was kind of like more in line with Scooby Doo stuff because if you look at the the Scooby Doo movies. Uh, like the actual television show, the Scooby-Doo movies, when you had like Sonny and Cher and Phyllis Diller and stuff like that, Don Knotts. It was always kind of like celebrities that were like past their prime to an extent or weren't as necessarily popular at that moment. Um, So you could kind of say that, yeah, Simon Cowell being in this movie makes some sense. Um, Even if you look at Scooby-Doo now, there was a Scooby-Doo series that came out, I think, sometime last year. What's new, uh, Scooby-Doo? Scooby-Doo and Guess Who. Okay. And that primarily had, like, every episode had, like, a special guest star on it. Some of them a little bit more modern. And then some of them were out of left field, like the episode where Urkel shows up with the Scooby gang. Okay. (laughs) Not, Not Julio White, per se, but it is voiced by him. But I'm talking Urkel. Urkel! With Scooby-Doo. So at that point, anything is possible. But yes, as far as this movie is concerned, it takes like the, the celebrity cameos uh, from uh, the Scooby-Doo movies. It takes a pup named Scooby-Doo. It takes uh, the fact that there's actual supernatural elements from like the uh, Scooby and Shaggy things like the Reluctant Werewolf and the 13 Ghosts. It even makes some of the characterizations that we see of these characters similar to that of the live action movies because... Uh, as far as uh, you know, Daphne, uh, Daphne is not the you know I guess uh, damsel in distress that she usually was in like the earlier versions. She's actually a little bit more impactful. She's a little bit more helpful. Um, and yet, throughout all this, there's really no mystery. There's barely a guy in a mask. Uh, there the tropes of like uh, jinkies and zoinks and Daphne, uh, Velma losing her glasses and, you know, everyone splitting up into two teams. I mean, that uh, it's so unlike a Scooby-Doo movie, and I think that almost kind of works for it. I, yeah, I guess I can kind of agree with that. Well, I, 
the feeling to me was it was more of a superhero movie and I'm a superhero fan. So I kind of like that aspect of the film. Um, there was a lot, I, I kept going back and forth with this film. I would like it and then I cringe and then I like it again. And then I cringe for <laughs> if it felt like for every good moment, this movie had, there was another moment that didn't hit the mark quite, quite well. Well, I mean, okay, let, let, let me preface this. The bad parts of this film is not so much the modernization of the Scooby gang, but it's the traditional studio stuff of trying to make that the characters too, yes. on screen hip, young, and relatable. No, actually, that didn't bother me. And that was, I know... That didn't bother you? No, I and I saw Dan Murrow's review as well, uh, where he was like, oh, bringing up millennials and bringing up uh, toxic masculinity. And I'm like, yeah, I heard that stuff in there, but it didn't bother Technically, me. Technically, they're not even millennials. That's Those are definitely Gen Z people, uh, <laughs> the Scooby gang. I don't know how they became that, because, I mean, he Shaggy even says, like, in that little speech when they're on the island, 10 years ago, I met my best friend. Right. So if we're talking that, that means they were kids slash teenagers maybe pre-teens back in 2010 so yeah no i get i get the point you're trying to you're saying here i'm just it, again it's just for me personally that stuff and i'm a, I'm a 35 year old man at this point so uh not to say i'm cool and hip and stuff i'm i'm losing touch i'm an well, old yeah, with your 30 year olds talking about a scooby-doo movie i get yeah, that no. point but 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 at the same time, actually, if anything bothered me, strangely enough, it was trying to go back to the old, old Scooby-Doo stuff. The Scooby-Doo old school Hanna-Barbera sound effects kind of irritated me at times. Doing the old school cartoon like Switcheroo where they throw in a costume and they trick the robots and stuff. That was like, eh. Oh, that was uh, darling. Nah. Over at the bowling alley when they were trying to like just hold off the little like. I thought, Scorpion slash baby bots. Yeah, that part. I thought it was cheesy. Um, and there was a but few. But that's what Scooby-Doo is, though. That's the thing. I mean, I can appreciate them, like, going back to, like, some of the old tropes and really, like, you know, utilizing them in, in any kind of sense that makes the plot flow because they're at the bowling alley. There's a snack stand. Sure. Um, this even is the a... stuff when they're on the, the, the Falcon Fury and they go through and raid the fridge. And they that, do like the whole big ice cream thing with like that didn't bother me. That that felt like on point with the characters, and I think that worked. But I think some of the cartoonish stuff that they've done in the '60s, I just didn't feel worked too well. This movie, especially at times where they're like pulling on heartstrings and stuff, I actually I teared up for Muttley in this film. It, oh God! Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. We got we got to talk about Dick Dastardly. All right. So. Unlike traditional Scooby-Doo movies where you don't know which one the villain is until like the clues start popping up, we get our villain right away, and it's Dick Dastardly, as in the Dastardly and Muttley cartoons, as in Wacky Races, as in Laugh Olympics. You know, uh, it, it was one of those things where it was like, it was a very great performance by Jason Isaacs as Dick Dastardly, I have to say. As far as any of the voice cast, him doing Dick Dastardly, was probably the easiest to gleam onto because he just does villains well when he's portrayed him in movies. And that really just shined right through for this, although cartoonish, but certainly overall pure bad guy. And then when you have to see him worrying about like Mudley of all characters, his like partner and yet the bane of his existence, I'm like, holy shit, I actually 
care. Yeah, I've never cared about this character when he was ever in the cartoons or in any form. I think here I care about Dick Dastardly and Muttley. I never thought I'd see that. I think because if you watch, and I watched Wacky Racers back in the day. I'm assuming you did too. So you well, know, yeah, we talked about it back when we were talking right. about uh, Apari Raman. Yeah, so we we know the characters. We know that the the pairing is Dick Dastardly and Muttley. So the fact that like you don't see Muttley around, and suddenly like this very evil character is talking so sadly about his his old partner, it's like, no, not Muttley. <laughs> It actually, it, I think it, it that was it. We actually, it, it's a weak connection, but it's a strong enough connection to be a tearjerker. And it, it got me a few times in the film. Dude, it was a stronger connection that I felt there than I felt between Shaggy and Scooby. Yeah. Though and we saw their origin in this movie. And yet I cared more about Dastardly and Muttley. And I think that was another po- problem with the film too. I think they were trying to set up this uh, film to start other things. We talked about that in another sh- uh, podcast, but it's like they were they were just building upon building just to get to an end. It's like when you make a plot point in the last five minutes of the movie and then negate that same plot point within the next minute or two. What was the point of it? It's like you can only lock this door, but one person has to lock it from the other side. We learned this in the last five minutes of the film. And then, like, there's this sad goodbye between Scooby and Shaggy, and suddenly that's all negated. Like, oh no, they're they're not. No one's stuck on the other side of the wall. They're out. Yeah, no, okay. That I'll admit the ending was a little contrived, but um, then again, what animated Warner Brothers Hanna Barbera ending hasn't been contrived. I mean, the only one I could say probably without a shadow of a doubt was maybe Scooby Doo on Zombie Island. Well, the little things too, like, well, now Scooby and Shaggy are not friends anymore, but they are friends and they need to forgive each other. It's just like, you know, friends fight, they fight, but it's like, it's just these things that were thrown in to kind of move the plot forward, but didn't really add anything. And sometimes just in my opinion, didn't make sense. It was, it was in my opinion, a weak story. Like I said, there, there was a lot of things I liked. I loved the animation. I, I did love. I, you said that the week there was a weakness between Scooby and Shaggy. I actually did kind of like their relationship, except for that part where they're like, "Well, now they're upset at each other." Um, but yeah, the the overall story I think was weak. I think they, it seemed like they just kind of threw it together. Well. I, again, I think the whole idea of them throwing things together really plays more into the fact that this wasn't a Scooby-Doo movie. It was Scoob being used as the, the linchpin for this overall Hanna-Barbera universe, everything's connected sort of idea. And you saw that with so, so many call-outs to so many different Hanna-Barbera characters throughout the movie. I'm not just talking about Dick Dastardly and Mudley. I'm not talking about... Blue Falcon and Dynamite and even DD and Captain Caveman. But all the stuff in the background too, whether it be uh, posters of the Hex Girls from the old uh, Scooby-Doo movies and video games of uh, Penelope Pitstop uh, and uh, the Impossibles, uh, Frankenstein Jr., uh, even the Jellystone billboard. What, what, this, was, this was one of those things that I loved. Because if you look at the scenes where uh, Fred, Daphne, and Velma are driving to um, the Dastardly's hideout, 
if you look at the background, they're reusing the same background <laughs> as uh, you, you continuously see them driving because the Jellystone National Park billboard mm-hmm. shows up like two or three times as they're driving. So the, so you the know old they joke. using it just like Hanna-Barbera did back in the day. You know what, though? There was no SWAT cats, and I'm, I know I'm mad. I want my SWAT cats. <laughs> well, there was also Where's no the SWAT cats? dogs either, but, you know, that, something's got to be saved for a sequel, which uh, I'll admit, if they ever do make another Hanna-Barbera movie, I don't want them to focus on Scoob again. You know, we've already seen Scoob, and we know what Scoob does. The whole Scooby game, they're all set in Venice. They have their outpost. They're making Mystery Inc. a thing. Fine. They'll continue their misadventures. Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt. We get it. Blue Falcon retired. The sun's taken over, which I hate that the sun was named Brian because in my mind, Brian always leads to Ryan. And so I was getting triggered by a lot of things. And I'd, I'd like them to go off on a tangent and really go into some other characters that would be existing in this world. Like I said in the previous episode, you know what I want to see? I want to see some speed buggy now. I want speed. I want there to be a talking car. I, I have to ask, do you think that this whole entire movie was just a setup for them to do an actual Blue Falcon film, but not enough people knew who Blue Falcon was? This, was, this was to introduce I mean, you to Blue I'm, Falcon? For what Blue Falcon and Dynamut were, first of all, loved Ken Jong as Dynamut. Mark Wahlberg as Blue Falcon. I thought that worked. It worked. It worked. He played the dullard well enough. Do I want to see more of that? I don't know. And uh, oh, and as far as like uh, cameos concerned and everything like that, uh, Tracy Morgan as Captain Caveman, completely uh. wasted. Yeah, I mean, how long was his scene? Maybe five minutes? There was no reason for it. And it, it just sounded like Tracy Morgan sounded like Tracy Morgan. It wasn't even him trying to be like uh, Captain Caveman in a sense. Did you I think it was going to be anything like, else? Uh, a lot the... Well, no, no. Here's the thing. <laughs> at least he wasn't going Unga Bunga Captain Caveman looking for... <laughs> I would have at least appreciated an Unga Bunga at some point. I never got an Unga Bunga. All right. Like, I get some of the changes because if you're going to have Shaggy and Scooby be goofballs, you don't want Dino Mutt to be a goofball, even though he was in the original animation. So you make him the smart one. Fine. If he's going to be the smart one, that means you have to have a counterpart in the dumb one. That's where Brian, the new Blue Falcon, comes into play. Fine. Mm-hmm. I get that. There is no reason we couldn't have a more prehistoric Captain Caveman. Instead, we've got Captain Caveman that just sounds like, you know, a dude bro. Like I said, they didn't really put a lot of thought in this film, and he was a wasted character. It's like that, you could that, that you like have done the film and not needed him. Mind. But uh, as far as like an overall movie, it's an entertaining movie. It's just if you go into it thinking it's going to be like the hundreds of other Scooby Doo uh, straight to video movies that you have seen, or any of the Scooby Doo episodes that you can see on any of the television shows, you might be a little disappointed. But if you're going into it because it's like an homage to all Hanna Barbera-ness, which, mind you, Hanna Barbera probably doesn't get as much credit or recognizability in this day and age as it had maybe back in the like the '90s, '80s, '70s, '60s, then I think you'll find a lot of stuff to enjoy. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're unfortunately running out of time, but uh, we thank you again for listening to us as always. Uh, any final thoughts there, uh, Big O? 
Uh, well, I think if we've proved anything today, it's that uh, heroes come in all shapes and sizes. And uh, in some cases, uh, all villains come in some shapes and sizes too. Whether or not you care about them is a different story. Uh, so just try to be your own kind of hero. And if that doesn't work, shoot him. So, <laughs> dude, what? Dark. I know. Very I was dark. I, I was trying to fit in Philly uh, from Cannon Busters. God damn. <laughs> well, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for joining us. Uh, you can find out all the information you need to about the show at jtbigo.com. There you can get a link to our Apple, Spotify, and Podbean accounts for the podcast. And, of course, you can check out video clips of the show on both YouTube and Facebook. Till then, I bid you all adieu. Bye-bye. And scene.